to work hard, spread lace to your wild town. Oh, how the good old union is coming here to dwell. Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Hello, good evening. Welcome to this event. Many thanks for joining us today to discuss Iraq 20 years on, how Bush and Blair's imperialist war devastated a nation. It's been organised by Labour Outlook, which is a fast growing website bringing you daily news and views from Labour's left and those at the forefront of resisting the Tories. The event is kindly being hosted online and streamed by the Arise Festival. The recent honouring of Tony Blair with a knighthood rightly provoked a massive backlash, not least because of the disaster that was the Iraq war. And this event today is looking to tell the truth about what happened in the Iraq war 20 years ago last week and to firmly rebut all those who would seek to rewrite the history of what happened in order to justify a reactionary foreign policy agenda today. Um, to discuss this, uh, we're joined today by Iraqi anti-war and justice campaigner Sami Ramadani, an international guest, Medea Benjamin from the peace movement in the US, and Shadia Edwards-Dashdi of Stop the War Coalition. The point of these Labour Outlook forums is to enable in-depth discussion, so we want to have as many questions and comments from the audience as possible. But because of the size of the audience, I'm pleased to say hundreds of people have registered in advance. We'll have volunteers who are going to be facilitating this through the Q&A function in Zoom rather than the chat. So if you've got a comment or a question, please submit those through Q&A. Uh, and then we will have time for a few rounds of questions from the audience after the speakers have finished. And there'll also be a chance for some shout outs, people. Please, if I can ask you, if you're in a position to make a donation to the streaming costs, that would be fantastic. Uh, and you could also become a supporter of Labour Outlook on Patreon so it can increase its web presence and put on more events. Um, I think there'll be details of how to do that put in the chat today. Um, thank you again for joining us. I think it's going to be a really interesting and thought-provoking discussion. Uh, so uh, without further ado, we'll move to our first speaker, Sami Ramadani, an Iraqi anti-war campaigner whose formidable campaigning over many years will be familiar to many of you. Thank you, Sami. Thank you so much uh, for that generous introduction and thank you for making the effort to commemorate this uh, this tragic event in many ways. Um, what I will focus tonight on is uh, the situation in Iraq today and also try and uh, link what goes on in Iraq today briefly towards the end um, to the events uh, happening today in terms of uh, the potential for uh, war and perhaps even uh, uh, terrifyingly a world war because of the uh, uh, recent events and escalation of uh, war in, in Ukraine. Um, <clears throat> but obviously, primarily, my, my task tonight uh, is to talk about Iraq and what happened in terms of the, uh, of the invasion and occupation of the country 20 years ago. 
Now, I say 20 years ago, but uh, with a very important uh, condition attached, which is that uh, that invasion and occupation uh, was not merely a, uh, an event that happened 20 years ago. I would like to stress the point that the occupation and invasion of Iraq uh, still has uh, current uh, uh, manifestations. Um, my own assessment is that Iraq is still a semi-occupied, uh, semi-independent country. Um, there are U.S. forces present uh, in Iraq, uh, several military bases. Uh, Iraq is used as a base of aggression against neighboring uh, countries, especially Iran and Syria. Um, uh, and the United States has an active presence in the country aside from its uh, military forces. Um, obviously, uh, uh, I'm assuming that we are all familiar with the immediate uh, impact within the first few years of the invasion and occupation of the country in terms of the uh, casualties, uh, the death toll reaching a million people, uh, millions uh, being uh, orphaned, maimed, injured, and so on. Uh, that uh, that uh, aspect of it is, is known to all. Um, but in terms of the longer term uh, impact on the country, it's absolutely uh, massive. Um, the, uh, the occupation set up a very corrupt uh, state based on sectarian divisions. And those sectarian divisions have a real impact on the country because the political forces that the United States backed or they chose to cooperate with the United States have taken hold of the state apparatus of the country. So the state itself, and I use the term state rather loosely because as I will explain, there is no uh, strong central state in Iraq anymore. The country is uh, divided into practically three regions, uh, Kurdistan in the north, uh, a so-called Sunni area in the uh, west and north, and Baghdad, Danort being uh, mostly Shia. So uh, the, the political parties that vibe for power have uh, taken on board that they do represent these sects or ethnicities, and the state power is divided accordingly. And division of power relates to the division of the economic wealth of Iraqi society. So the struggle is over who controls most of the uh, wealth produced in the, in the country. And the United States is uh, a, a decisive political factor in the middle, whether it's uh, through its military and intelligence uh, presence, through its uh, 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 U.S. Embassy is still the biggest in the world, and through other mechanisms. One of the most important mechanisms that the U.S. Use, uses in Iraq is uh, an economic one. Uh, Iraqi oil sales are uh, conducted in the dollar. It goes through U.S. Federal Bank. So every barrel of oil that Iraq produces and 95% of Iraqi state budget uh, comes from uh, oil resources, selling the oil, every dollar goes through U.S. Federal Bank. Iraqi reserves are also held by the 
over 50 billion of Iraqi reserves are held by the uh, um, US Federal Bank. And this uh, domination of Iraq's, uh, uh, Iraq's uh, uh, if you like, <laughs> daily budget uh, is, is quite massive. And it, it exercises, the US exercises enormous uh, uh, power over any Iraqi government. Um, and the other uh, sort of important levers that the, that the US has uh, are quite varied. One is through the political forces that they back, sometimes finance, sometimes arm. They have secret militias uh, in the country and so on. Uh, but they, what they also do um, is uh, create a climate. And the way they create a climate in the country is through do their domination of the media. So they have, the US has a very powerful social media presence, for example, through uh, well-known personalities, uh, through so-called NGOs that the US set up uh, in Iraq after the occupation. Um, Tens of them, literally tens of NGOs were literally uh, funded by the U.S. occupation authorities after, uh, after the invasion of Iraq. Um, they operate through TV stations, local TV stations. They operate through uh, the, the print media, publishing houses. The biggest publishing house in the country called Almada is... Uh, 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 quite close to the U.S. embassy and what it wants. Um, it operates through uh, the biggest political forces in the country, armed political forces, mainly uh, through uh, Barzani. Barzani is the, uh, is the leader of the Kurdistan Democratic Party, uh, one of the main pillars of U.S. presence of, in, of, uh, in Iraq. Uh, he has under his command over 100,000 uh, uh, militia force, uh, the Peshmerga, who historically might have played a, a positive role in the sense of, uh, of defending Kurdish people's uh, uh, national rights and so on. But uh, over the decades, gradually, this massive military political force uh, has become allied to the United States and they train their uh, forces uh, quite publicly. They have a, a budget which is set by the United States uh, uh, publicly. So this is a very important force that uh, without its blessing, if you like, an agreement, no government can function in Baghdad. Because of the sectarian divisions I mentioned, this is one side that must be pleased in, for, in the formation of any central government in Baghdad. So this business of the three regions of Iraq being divided that way was originally uh, suggested by Biden. Today's President Biden, it was Senator Biden who suggested it uh, years ago, how to divide Iraq and centrally, and very importantly, that Iraq alongside these divisions must not have a strong central government. This is a red line. Uh, any measures, economic, political, uh, administrative even, which gives more power to the center is a red line. The US embassy and US uh, will object. Um, so it is essential to have such a weak government. And obviously, if you are backing uh, these uh, 
sectarian forces, necessarily also the central government will be weakened. But obviously central government has levers of power, especially in the economic field, um, uh, in terms of international relations. And once the central government tries to exercise those levers, the US embassy actively intervenes. I mean, the US amb ambassador, since this new government was appointed about three months ago, uh, has held 44, 45 meetings with the prime minister of Iraq, with the president, with the various ministers, with the head of the Iraqi central bank, <laughs> for, a, for an ambassador to, to hold uh, uh, 45 meetings or so with, uh, with Iraqi officials in itself tells, uh, tells uh, an important story. And she uh, frequently issues statements, uh, uh, conducts interviews, explaining how Iraq should and should not, uh, should not behave. Um, the, um, the US government in terms of, the, uh, of its levers objects to certain things. So for example, the, uh, three years ago, uh, the, the central government signed a deal with China. And that deal meant uh, giving China 100,000 uh, barrels a day of oil in return for infrastructure projects that China was due to carry out in Iraq. Uh, uh, President Trump went mad, uh, Pompeo went mad. They were all uh, 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 phoning and uh, physically going to Iraq as well to put pressure on the Iraqi government to uh, freeze that, uh, that deal. Uh, uh, Iraq uh, uh, canceled a deal with General Electric in favor of Siemens of Germany, so that electricity uh, problems are solved in Iraq. There are electricity cuts in Iraq, uh, and, and the summer it's impossible without some, uh, some uh, uh, electric power. Uh, children suffer enormously with electric cuts and so on. Uh, the country gets crippled by, by lack of electricity, which has suffered enormously since the invasion and occupation of the country. And General Electric failed to, to do uh, any decent uh, projects in Iraq, uh, despite getting billions uh, of dollars from the central government. So that contract with Seaman again upset uh, the United States, Pompeo called, Trump called, and Iraq uh, was, was to freeze that uh, contract through overthrowing government, the government actually. The United States uh, intervened in a public uprising uh, three years ago, and that public uprising was obviously entirely legitimate, uh, popular demands and so on, but through the so-called NGOs, through social media, through US embassy agents and so on in the country, they managed to to control the main aims of that uprising, leading to the overthrow of Adil Abdel Mahdi's government, who signed the deal with China, who signed the deal with Siemens, who opened the borders with Syria, who refused to implement strict sanctions on Iran and so on. These were all red lines that he crossed. So uh, he was overthrown and a, a puppet regime was installed of Kadhimi. This new one, 
Um, Sammy, uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but sure. if you could um, draw to a close, it's really fascinating, but I'm just conscious we've got uh, two other speakers. That would yes, be of course, please. Uh, I will. Uh, have I got to a, a couple of minutes? A couple of minutes would be lovely. Okay. Thank you. Excellent, excellent. Okay, uh, now in terms of uh, trying to see where Iraq will be heading, I think uh, without uh, expelling the US forces from Iraq and that power within the country, Iraq could not become a proper independent country to bring prosperity and heal the wounds of its, of its people on many fronts, whether economic, social, uh, condition of women in the country deteriorated, uh, a host of uh, of problems that faces Iraq. Uh, I mean, the land of Iraq itself is poisoned by depleted uranium. Depleted uranium, as we know, is now being uh, exported by Britain to the Ukrainian uh, government to use uh, in, in Ukraine. This is a chemical weapon. So in, in addition to the use of white phosphorus in Iraq, uh, tens of thousands of tons of uh, depleted uranium was used. So there are enormous problems in the country that could not be resolved without expelling the United States direct and indirect uh, presence in the country. I think the United States today uh, looks as though it's focusing on China and Russia, of course. They are trying to escalate war, uh, war steps uh, across the world and their presence in Iraq and the Middle East in general is also one of the anchors because they do not want to let go of their control of the oil resources, the wealth of that region. They do, do not want to let go of Israel, their forward military base uh, in the Middle East against the wishes of the Palestinian people, their rights and the rights of the people in, uh, in the area in general. Thousands of US soldiers are in Syria. They are literally stealing, stealing Syrian oil uh, under their control as Trump famously uh, declared and they still do so today. So we have a situation uh, across the world where U.S.-led imperialism is uh, is escalating uh, 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 war uh, preparations, bringing in Japan, Australia, uh, and uh, obviously using the British government and its docile uh, policies, uh, uh, implementing what the U.S. wants uh, in Europe and the Ukraine. What they do in the Ukraine as as their own proxy war and it is a US-led proxy war in many respects in the Ukraine, and they are trying to escalate these tensions. And this is their response to a deep economic crisis, whether in the United States or across, uh, or across Europe. Uh, this deep economic crisis is, uh, or they are trying classically, uh, traditionally, uh, through escalation of tensions and war by supplying all these hundreds of billions of dollars to the war industry, the technology industry related to war and so on. So the front against imperialism runs from Iraq, Middle East, all the way to Ukraine uh, and Latin America and so on. And uh, unless the peoples of the world unite, this war escalation is going to bring uh, a catastrophe to the world. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much, Sami. Really fascinating. And uh, you've covered a huge amount of ground. Thank you very much. 
Uh, we will um, be able to take some questions. Uh, so if you have got any reminder, please put them in the Q&A uh, and do put in where you're from. It's always great to know uh, where people are watching us from. Uh, we're very briefly now going to have Sam, one of the Labour Outlook volunteer team, who's just going to tell us a little bit more about today's organisers and uh, maybe urging you to dip into your pockets. Thank you. Uh, yeah, hi all. Uh, it's really good uh, to see so many people on the call. Uh, as we said, I am Sam. Um, I'm one of the organisers of Labour Outlook. We're a news and views website of the Labour left and we organise regular events like today's forum, forum. And obviously those events, I think, are becoming more and more important. And we're seeing a militarisation of our economy. We're seeing a, the rising threat of nuclear war. We're seeing mounting global tensions and polarisation. So a voice for peace has become more important than perhaps it's been at any time in recent history. And that's where you come in, um, because there are three things that you can do today um, to help us to continue the work we do in terms of uh, being that voice for peace and British political discourse. The first thing is this. It costs about £200 uh, to run one of these meetings. So that means if 10 people in the audience now donate 20 quid, that's the cost covered. Um, so that's the first request. Please, please um, uh, follow the link uh, that's put in the chat and donate uh, to our streaming costs today. The second thing um, is please check out Labour Outlook. Um, like I say, we're a news and views website of the Labour left. Uh, we bring you uh, those news and views from the front line of struggles against racism, against war, imperialism, austerity, the climate emergency and many more things. So please check us out. And if you like what you read, please contribute to our Patreon page. Um, you can uh, again, the, the link to that will be set up, uh, will be um, uh, will be put in the chat. Um, if we have those regular contributions on Patreon, that means we can keep doing the things that we're doing. So please do contribute. The third thing that you can do um, is come to our next event, come to our next Labour Outlook Forum, um, Why Palestine Matters on the 15th of May with Bernard Reagan. Um, obviously, that's a kind of central issue to the issues we're discussing today and touched upon, in fact, in what Sammy just said. So please come to come to that forum and, um, and come and have a come and have a chat about why Palestine matters. So those are the three things. And there's one more fourth thing. I don't know if I mentioned it. Please donate towards the streaming costs of today's event. Your help really matters. And it means that we can continue doing really politically important work um, of, of, of fighting for peace. If that's not too much of an oxymoron. Thanks very much, Ruth. Thank you very much, Sam. And uh, please do support Labour Outlook if you're able to in one of those ways. Uh, and they'll be put in the chat. Uh, Moving to our next speaker, it's a real honour to have with us today a prominent uh, US peace campaigner, Medea Benjamin from Code Pink. Medea, you're very welcome. Thank you so much. So nice to be on with you. And a uh, big hello to Sami, who I uh, have read for so many years and is such an expert on this issue. Uh, I want to just look at this from a U.S. perspective. Well, U.S.-U.K. perspective, of course, uh, the way that this 20 years has been uh, evaluated in the U.S. media is somehow this was just a mistake. And the U.S. went in with good intentions, but it just had uh, poor execution. 
And I think it's so important to try to get across to our peoples that this was a, a calculated, premeditated crime on a massive scale, and that the perpetrators of this crime have never been held accountable. Sammy, I'm glad that you brought up uh, Joe Biden, because we usually talk about Bush and we talk about Tony Blair, and the fact that Tony Blair has been knighted is just absolutely obscene. Um, the fact that uh, George Bush uh, is a elder statesman that goes around uh, painting the uh, pictures of the victims of the, his war, the U.S. Uh, military victims of his war, is also quite obscene. I happen to be in Texas right now on a Ukraine book tour, and here he has his grand library in Texas, and you know he is um, celebrated as this great figure in history, which is uh, remarkable. Uh, but there's also Biden because he was uh, the number one U.S. architect of this war when he was, as Sammy said, head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and uh, decided it would be go a good thing to not only invade Iraq, but then divide it into these three sections. Um, and the, the uh, other architects of this war, and there are so many, uh, continue today in the think tanks to be the experts that we hear uh, on television uh, uh, with their opinions about what's happening in Ukraine, uh, the journalists who were uh, such uh, propaganda mouthpiece for the government continue today. So it is incredible that our, quote, democratic societies are not able to uh, uh, bring to account uh, those who are responsible for such a horrific crime. And of course, the international community is not able to do that uh, with the talk about bringing uh, 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 Vladimir Putin to an international criminal court for the invasion of Ukraine, uh, many of us also say, yes, and what about Bush and Blair? Um, Sammy went through the uh, consequences of these 20 years uh, to show a, a government that is riddled with corruption, in fact, one of the most corrupt in the world today, the increase of social conservatism in Iraq, uh, the increase in violence against women, uh, the fact that Iraq is still so dependent, over 90% of its exports on oil, uh, that there have been no reparations from the countries that invaded and destroyed Iraq, and uh, that what are the lessons learned? Um, if the lesson you would think they would learn is don't invade and try to uh, uh, engineer another country's uh, politics. Um, of course, they didn't learn that. I think what they learned is don't or try very hard not to send in troops from your own country because that creates a lot of opposition in our countries. So we see the case of Libya uh, under Obama uh, overthrowing that government. And we see the continued efforts on the part of our governments to overthrow other countries by other means. And a lot of the means that they are using right now are economic means, uh, these economic sanctions. Uh, we saw in Iraq how devastating those economic sanctions were, uh, how hundreds of thousands of people met their deaths because of economic sanctions. And they are still portrayed today as an alternative to war. And we see them, uh, the consequences of those economic sanctions in places across the globe, uh, like. Uh, from Cuba to Venezuela to Syria to uh, North Korea. Um, the other thing that uh, is interesting to look at from the days of the invasion was how 
uh, the U.S. and the U.K. used the sympathy that the U.S. had globally from the 9-11 attacks to create the conditions for uh, the invasion and to build up this, quote, coalition of the willing uh, by using that sympathy and also strong arming countries around the world to join up in this in invasion. Uh, and also to use the fear and anger at the, on the part of Americans after 9-11 for that attack. And now juxtapose it today to get our country so deeply involved in the war in Ukraine, uh, it's been harder to do that because uh, the US and the UK have lost a lot of legitimacy because of the invasion of Iraq. Uh, I remember being at a, um, a, a protest about two weeks ago here in the United States and somebody had a sign saying, you lied to us about Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Somalia, and now you expect us to believe you about Ukraine. Uh, this is the same kind of thing that people of the global south are saying while it's being touted that this global coalition has been built uh, to, uh, to be part of the war of Ukraine. The majority of people, particularly in the global south, uh, remember what happened in Iraq, don't, uh, aren't so ready to believe the narrative, and most importantly, don't want to get involved in a war that they see as a proxy war uh, between the West and Russia. Uh, so I also just want to say uh, in closing that the Iraq war was an example of us as citizens doing our job. And I think in the US and the UK and then people around the world, the fact that we were able to build up this massive, massive anti-war movement, and we still recall the February 15, 2002, the uh, unbelievably huge demonstrations. Um, but then there is the fact that our governments ignored us. And I think that has created a lot of cynicism, especially here in the United States, about what good does it do to come out in large numbers to protest wars? And it's been very hard to overcome that cynicism and uh, the understanding that our quote democracy doesn't work like it's supposed to because the powers that be make the decisions and don't listen to what the people are saying. And now in the case of Iraq, uh, we have a very difficult time both overcoming the media narrative as well as overcoming this sense of cynicism. So that is just to say that the Iraq war has left, of course, the deepest of scars, the deepest of wounds in Iraq itself. But in our societies, it's also left a lot of wounds that make it difficult for us to push our governments to do the right thing. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Um, that, that was also incredibly interesting. Uh, we've got some great questions coming through, so do put those in the Q&A. Uh, and we'll move now to our next speaker, Shadia Edwards-Dashti of the Stop the War Coalition. Shadia, over to you. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for having me on this panel. It's really interesting to hear all of these discussions and reflections of the last 20 years on those really horrifically defining moments of this war that was based on lies and deceit that saw so many thousands of deaths um, as Sami and Medea have already mentioned, of course, it was a war that should never have happened. And we've heard of the history uh, from Sami's descriptions. We've heard of the context today as well, that there was uh, certainly uh, no positives that can be drawn from such a war. For me, 
I was just 11 when uh, the Iraq war was waged. And I remember on the television screens, these awful images coming out onto the news as my parents were watching. And it was really awful to see. But of course, when you're that little, you only remember things in your mind as these defining milestone moments. And particularly as a young kid, you, it's just a, con a concept, really. It's much more conceptual than being tangible or anything that I could really relate to, seeing it through a television screen. I could barely really understand uh, what was going on. However, there are moments in time in the war in terror that I could relate to even as a very young child. So I'm specifically speaking about the ideological uh, war on terror here. Um, we heard earlier from Medea about the calculated imagery and the concept of fear, fear fueling uh, this war. Well, that was very much at the forefront of the repercussions and consequences here in the United Kingdom of the war on terror. Because if we take the context of 9-11, for instance, the very next day I went into school, I was nine years old uh, in 2001, and uh, a, a classmate ran up to me and he said, your dad's a terrorist. And he was nine years old. To come out with something like that was of course very shocking, but at nine years old, I didn't understand what that actually meant. So I went home and I said to my sister, so-and-so said that dad's a terrorist. Um, now we have to think about what all of this means in the context, because if I didn't know what that word meant, then he didn't know what that word meant. And if he didn't know what that word meant, then who did? So we then look back and think, okay, well, of course it's come from his parents. And that was the birth of this kind of language. And that was the birth of connecting my father, an Arab man to terrorism through the color of his skin and the fact that he's Arab and Muslim. And that was the connection. And this is the ideological war on terror that the Iraq war, that the war in Afghanistan, that the war on terror has created. And we still hear of those sorts of stories and those consequences even today. 20 years on from that moment, I've experienced dozens of similar episodes from microaggressions, but all the way to these really serious uh, racism terms that are being described about me and my family regarding Islam and being Arab as well. So of course, Islamophobia is rife. In fact, even today, a poll was published uh, that shows 50, almost 50% 50 of young Muslims in Britain have experienced Islamophobia. Now I'm still classed as a young person and therefore all those young people have been brought up in the United Kingdom in the context of the war on terror. The last 20 years have a direct impact on people all over uh, Europe as well through these connections of racism. Of course, 9-11 was a terrible attack, a mass murder on innocent civilians. No one doubts that it was an appalling mass murder, but 9-11 unleashed a response which it did not seek to understand what had prompted this attack, nor did it seek to understand the causes of this attack. Instead, this crude and juvenile simplistic analysis blamed the attack simply on fanaticism. And as a result, unleashed a most ferocious response using the law and the very principles upon which the law was founded to then create more law and more law and more law to crush communities like Arab communities, crush Muslim communities, whose only crime was a belief in Islam. And so what we've seen in the UK is things like the prevent strategy. We've seen counter-terrorism law that directly is linked 
whether we like it or not, to the uh, Muslim population. And so this is what we mean by the ideological war on terror. And I think it's really important to look at it from that perspective as well, because as I say, it still lingers. If we look at the treatment of Jeremy Corbyn just yesterday, uh, the decision to block him uh, from standing uh, as a Labour candidate, the attack on Jeremy Corbyn is also an attack on the anti-war movement. It's so ironic that Keir Starmer chooses this particular point in time uh, on the 20th anniversary of the war in Iraq a war that Jeremy Corbyn campaigned so vehemently against uh, to then penalise and punish him now. Instead, we see war criminals like Tony Blair being hailed and walking free while somebody like Julian Assange is locked up. Why would Keir Starmer do that? Well, he simply wants to quell and silence and quash, gag anything that Jeremy Corbyn stands for, including his pro-peace stance. So, we look at Keir Starmer as well upon his most recent vis visit to Kyiv when he was visiting President Zelensky. He said if he were to become the prime minister, there'd be no difference between a Labour government and a Tory government when it came to supporting the war. That's pretty alarming considering the UK has already supplied £2.3 billion in terms of supporting this war. Um, we then have to look at Stop the War and their position on all of this. This is, again, a direct attack on the pro-peace movement and a direct attack on an organisation like Stop the War for everything that it represents. We know that back with the Iraq War, Stop the War uh, organised one of the, the biggest demonstrations the UK has ever seen. And although I wasn't there, it still shapes the way I see the world, that particular demonstration. And it still galvanises me as an anti-war activist, but as a person as well that people power can make a difference because we're still talking about that demonstration now and we're still drawing on the successes of that demonstration now as well. And I've been involved in Stop the War for quite a long time since I was 18. As I say, it has shaped me. And what we can see though, is that history is in some senses being repeated. Those same arguments can be drawn upon again today. The government still pretends there's some sort of magic money tree we see that the United Kingdom has given billion pounds, billions of pounds in military assistance to Ukraine. Um, we also see that every, almost every sector in Britain is now on strike. Millions of people are plunging below the poverty line, but yet there's all that money to spend on war. And so really, as somebody that's been involved in Stop the War Coalition, we can draw on so many things then and now. There are so many victims of war, of course, the innocent civilians, uh, in those countries. But there is also a wider impact too on workers here that are paying the price in their salaries and their quality of living. Uh, we see many people too, like the ideological war, there are victims there too, that makes pretty much anyone a target. Even the little nine-year-old schoolgirl that was targeted uh, back then as well. So it's really important to connect all of these dots when we look back on the 20 years that have been and gone but also where we can take the movement today. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Shadia. And um, really fascinating to hear from our panelists so far about both the, uh, the impacts across the world uh, and the impacts, of course, across generations. Um, we've got our final speaker now, who's Matt Wilgress, who's from today's organisers. Uh, Matt was also secretary of the LSE Stop the War Society from 2003 to 2005. 
uh, and a founding uh, supporter of Labour Against the War in the run-up to the Afghan and Iraq wars. So, Matt. Thanks, Ruth. And uh, maybe Labour Against the War is something that we need to uh, kick off again at the moment. Um, thanks so much to Sammy and others for giving the information on what happened in Iraq and why that human catastrophe mustn't be forgotten as much as those like Blair who would like to rehabilitate the idea of humanitarian imperialism would like to do so. Um, I'm going to cut back my speech a bit as a lot of what I was going to say has been covered. But one point I would, would point out is that like as with the later war in Libya, the much sort of trumped up and in my opinion necessary demand to support national self-determined nation goes straight out the window when it conflicts with these occupations. Um, and as Sammy has pointed out, you see the sort of rights of multinationals to make obscene profits put ahead of the rights of people to govern them, their own destiny. Um, I think it's also worth, when we look back 20 years, remembering that whilst nearly every Labour political figure here now, and indeed many from beyond Labour and across the spectrum, claim to have been against the war in Iraq, that simply wasn't the case at the time. Um, the anti-war movement was also subject to intense demonisation from parts of the political establishment, including the government of the day and much of the media, and that shouldn't be forgotten. Um, and as Media noted, last month was the anniversary 20 years since that February 2003 march. And um, I remember that very well. Like um, As Ruth mentioned, I was at the LSE University at the time and we had over a thousand people assemble like at the crack of dawn on Saturday morning just at our campus for that demonstration um, and we had a really vibrant Stop the War Society that had different national groups in it, climate campaigners and just people who were pulled at what was going on in addition to like the established left groups um, and as Shadia said looking back now I would not say and we shouldn't accept the arguments of those who say that the anti-war movement made no difference um, and we certainly shouldn't use the fact that we didn't stop the war in Iraq to not rebuild movements such as that today and in the future. Um, one thing that I think is often forgotten is that many who attended their first protest in the UK that day, whilst devastated not to have prevented an unjust and illegal war, many were not lost to politics actually, and it became a formative experience instead. And if you look at, for example, how popular Stop the War Coalition was amongst people who joined in polling, amongst people who joined the rejoined Labour to back Jeremy when he was running for leader, um, we can see that. And also many people, I think, as Sammy hinted at, have developed an analysis of imperialism and a political dishonesty of the ruling class for the first time, which isn't easily forgotten. Um, and I also think there's little doubt that war on Iran and possibly Korea too was on Bush and Blair's agenda at some point, but did not materialise. And barriers were put up to that through the massive movements against the war in Iraq and the resistance of the Iraqi people. And additionally, here in Britain, I think the memory of how unpopular the war on Iraq was influenced politicians, including then Labour leader Ed Miliband, from not backing bombing Syria in Parliament in 2013. Um, but as Shadia highlighted, I think the Tories committing to a dangerous nuclear escalation policy. We need to again be standing up against our government's reactionary foreign policy agenda. We stand up to them on their reactionary domestic agenda, and we need to do the same on foreign policy. Um, personally speaking, I thought it was deeply concerning the other week when the Tories announced five billion extra on already recordly high levels of military spending, with which three billion of this five billion is new nuclear spending. Much of the opposition was actually saying it was not enough, including from sections of the Labour movement. That's despite the fact that our military spending is already the highest in Europe 
one of the highest in the world, and our public sector is subject to never-ending cuts. Um, at that demonstration that I mentioned in 2003, this is my closing bit, Tony Benn said, we'd formed a movement which was to focus on opposing rule in Iraq, but must be about other matters as well. He said it must be about the establishment of a Palestinian state. It must be about democracy in the Middle East. There is no democracy in Saudi Arabia or Iraq. And how about some democracy in Britain as well? Tony, of course, had recently retired from Parliament at that time and gave the rest of his life to building this and many other movements for peace and justice here and across the world. Jeremy Corbyn, still demonised, as Shadley mentioned daily by much of the corporate media, over three years on from being Labour's leader, not least because his commitment to the causes of peace and justice internationally was, of course, often by Tony's side. And I think to conclude, we're left us in a difficult period here, but all around us we can also see campaigns against the ruling class offensive mushrooming, from the trade union strikes, as Shadia mentioned, to the growing community support for refugees, and as expressed perhaps strangely but very well in the support for Gary Lineker, and the growing climate justice action on the street. So let's rediscover the spirit of resistance we had in 2003 and build movements together for a better, more peaceful world. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. Um, we've had some amazing contributions. Uh, can I thank everyone who's taken part this afternoon, to our speakers uh, and to everybody who's participated and to the volunteer team. If you are able to make a donation towards the hosting costs, uh, that would be fantastic. If you can become a Patreon supporter, that would be great. Labour Outlook can increase then its web presence and put on more events. And please do also consider joining Stop the War, Coalition, CND, and some of the other important campaigns that have been mentioned this evening. We really hope you've enjoyed uh, the discussion today. The next discussion is going to be on why Palestine matters, and that's taking place on Monday, May the 15th at 6.30. So please do join us then and make sure that you follow us on Twitter and Facebook. They're both at Labour Outlook uh, to keep up to date with what we're doing.